annual sleep meeting, which is that first weekend of June. And when I went, I got a job offer. I got recruited to work in a sleep research lab that was focused on kids sleep. And we also did some work that was super fascinating for NASA, looking if you can really improve sleep for maybe a week before you go into a period where you know you're going to be sleep deprived and kind of preserve your performance during that sleep deprivation period by sleep loading in advance. So we learned so much. Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist, also keynote and TEDx speaker, and author of the triple award-winning book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As listeners to the podcast know, my goal is to always bring you guests who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and have different ways of helping us to become better versions of ourselves. And that includes being healthier and more alert versions of ourselves. And that's where today's guest comes in. Very proud to present Dr. Catherine Darley, who is a naturopathic physician and a sleep expert. She's an expert in natural sleep medicine, which we'll find out what that means. Uh, She's treated patients for over 20 years, and she teaches the skills that people need to thrive through online courses. So uh, that should be tremendously interesting. I think anything that we can learn online makes it it easier. Um, But before we get to that, we got to learn a little bit about how we can sleep better, why it's an issue, and... uh, what kind of control we have over that. So uh, without any further ado, Catherine, I want to welcome you to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. We are so looking forward to what you have to teach us today. Great. Thank you, Dr. Ron and everybody. I'm glad to be here. Everybody sleeps, right? Yeah, yeah. This is one of those topics where I don't have to worry about... uh, you know, are we only speaking to women or men or old folks or parents of young children or whatever? Maybe we all start sleeping as soon as we come out of the womb. And uh, somewhere along the way, some of us have have some issues with that. Um Before we get into that, though, I'm always, uh, you know, listeners to the show are... Uh, kind of recognizing the fact I'm always interested in how people get to be who they are, you know, and uh, oh. most of us don't know a lot of sleep experts, you know, uh, so just kind of wondering how how you got into the sleep world and uh, became uh, uh, this renowned sleep expert. So I actually got interested in sleep at a young age. And my last two years of college, I really focused my group projects and and, uh, individual projects on sleep. And uh, when I graduated, I asked mom and dad for my graduation gift to go to the annual sleep meeting, which is that first weekend of June. And when I went, I got a job offer. I got recruited to work in a sleep research lab that was focused on kids sleep 
And we also did some work that was super fascinating for NASA, looking if you can really improve sleep for maybe a week before you go into a period where you know you're going to be sleep deprived and kind of preserve your per performance during that sleep deprivation period by sleep loading in advance. So we learned so much. And I was thinking, well, how am... I going to approach sleep? I knew I wanted it to be my career, but was it going to be research or medicine or psychology? And I had one of those light bulb moments one day, uh, riding on the train, kind of in a meditative state. And I thought, oh my goodness, it just does not make sense to treat such a foundational physiological process with a bunch of chemical pills. And so I'm going to be a naturopath looking at how to improve sleep and using naturopathic principles that don't have those side effects of, um, of pharmaceuticals. So that's what I've done. Yeah. Great. Well, you're obviously working in the same ballpark as me in terms of trying to get by with as little medication as possible uh, and utilize our own processes but one of the questions that I've always had, I've had the same question with respect to exercise uh, and definitely with respect to sleep. It's when a baby is born, uh, it's one of the, the first and most prominent things that, that he or she does with their time, uh, spend most of the time sleeping. And uh, so it seems like we've got all the... Uh, all the requirements to not make sleep a problem. Where did we yeah. go wrong as a species? Well, I think a lot about our lifestyle and our circadian system and how it's tied in with the earth and the rhythms of the sun, but we've moved away from that, right? We're now in built inside buildings, human beings spend about 80% of their time indoors nowadays, and the lighting conditions are not what we need for a healthy circadian rhythm. And the circadian rhythm is that 24 hour pattern in our function and sleep is part of that. Sleep and wake is a 24 hour pattern. And when you kind of mute or flatten your 20, your circadian system, then your sleep and wakefulness are just not as robust or pronounced. So does that mean uh, like during prehistoric times or, or more recently, but before light bulbs and things of that nature, uh, did people have less of a problem with sleep? They went to bed when it was dark and got up when it was light? Yes. People did have less of a problem. And even in the 1940s, people had less of a problem um, with sleep. Now it's actually about 36% of adults are not getting the sleep that they need on work nights. So that's, you know, has a big impact on their day-to-day -day experience, but also their aging over decades. So that, that's a pretty significant number. That's more than a third who have yeah. Sleep. Um, does uh, is there an optimal num number of hours of sleep or that that people require? Is there a lot of individual variation? It's actually a bell curve, just like anything we can measure around human 
physiology or human factors. Like think about it like height, right? You take all the women my age and demographic and you chart our height and it's on a bell curve. And our sleep need is also on a bell curve. Between seven and nine hours is what we think most adults need. Not unusual to need up to 10, not unusual to need as little as six, but what's really important is for each person to identify where do they fall on that bell curve. It does not mean that every adult will be just fine if they need get seven hours. Some are at seven, some are at nine, eight and a half, whatever. So I like people to really think about and identify how much sleep do I do best with? Maybe they can think back to a memory of a time that they were super well rested and remember how much sleep they were getting. Or if you are someone who's sleeping more on your nights, on your days off, your nights off, then that would be an indication that you're not getting enough sleep on the work days. And you can keep increasing, increasing your sleep on work nights until you don't need extra on weekends. Okay. And uh, no, this is very interesting. I uh, th This leads me to the other question. I, I know some of us describe ourselves as morning people or evening people. Is that a, kind of a learned behavior or are there individual differences in terms of the circadian rhythm and so on? That is uh, really hardwired into people at the level of the brain and at the each cell has actually a clock where it does more or less of its function at different times of day. And whether you're a morning person or a night person is really hardwired. Think about it, Dr. Ron, like eye color can't change your eye color. You could maybe wear con colored contacts and appear to be different for the short while that you're using that intervention. But as soon as you remove it, your eye color is gonna be the same as it always is. And and I, I'm gonna get a little bit on a soapbox because I think that people who are night owls, there's some shaming and blaming around that. Like, oh, if you just were more disciplined with getting off your phone at night, or if you weren't lazy and trying to avoid getting up and, and being responsible with school in the morning. Um, but really it's it's just who they are. And, and there's actually good, um, we think that there's good reasons for a society or a village or a um, family even to have people who are on different schedules. It means that somebody's awake in the morning taking care of business for the group and somebody's awake at night watching out, taking care of business for the group, putting a log on the fire or whatnot. So, uh, you know, I, I like people as best they can. And I know it's not always possible but to design your lifestyle in accordance with your circadian system. So if you are strongly a night owl, having a job that, uh, you know, starts a little bit later or negotiating those hours with your uh, supervisor, you know, of course, that's not always possible, but sometimes it is. <clears throat> well, you've confirmed something that I figured out for myself, sort of, which is that uh, I go to bed uh, go, uh, later than I thought I should. Uh, but I find that if, if I go to bed at roughly the same time, which is later than a lot of people, but not, not terribly late, but 
later than a lot of people. You know, I don't yawn during the day. I get up at, at a reasonable time and so on. Uh, now, I think sometimes there are probably disincentives to this. For example, if, uh, if I am kind of a night person, uh, but I can make a whole lot more money if I take this job that starts at, at 6 or 7 a.m. Um, can I train myself to, to be different or am I going to have to put up with either, either making less money or being kind of miserable? It, it is hard to really train yourself to be strongly a morning person if your set point is just to be a night owl. There are things that you can do to make it better. Um, one thing I would love to talk about if we have time is blue light at night. I think at this point, most people have heard that having blue light from our electronics, our TVs, our handheld devices in the evening is um, negative for our sleep. I don't think people understand how very sensitive our system is. Basically in naturalistic light conditions, which would be sunset, uh, candlelight, firelight, those really historic types of light, very dim light, our melatonin starts to rise before we get into bed. And melatonin is the hormone of darkness. It helps us feel sleepy. And I think that's why so many people are having difficulty with taking a long time to fall asleep is because their melatonin with all this bright light doesn't have a chance to rise before bed. So what one thing that people who are strongly night owls can do is to wear blue blocking glasses like these from 9 p.m. on. And if they do that for just um, a week or two, about 10 days, it will help them fall asleep significantly earlier. Um, and there's many, you know, blue light blocking glasses on the market. You, I want to point out, you really need them to have this very strong reddish-orange hue to the lenses. That is very important. There are some products that are more of a clear lens or maybe a yellowish lens. They really need to have this orangish-red um, color to them to be effective. And uh, yeah, I wish that part of that conversation about blue light at night would emphasize more how very sensitive the system is. Basically, if there's enough uh, light that you can hold your hand out and see your fingers wiggling, that is enough light to suppress your melatonin somewhat. Well, this is really interesting and it raises uh, at least a couple of questions. Um, one is if you wear the, the blue light blocking glasses, does it mean you uh, disregard uh, any advice about shutting off electronics because I've heard that that you should also like shut off electronics say an hour before or whatever the time frame is I I haven't paid too much attention because I don't have a problem falling asleep but uh, um, if if you wear that does that mean you can just wear it and then then go to sleep I would still dim the lights as best you can. The recommendation is actually for three hours before bed to have that low level of light. And I think for many people, 
you're still in the really active part of your day, three hours before bed. So I don't know how realistic it is for most people to turn off their electronics before bed. The other tip I would love to give is on your phone, you can download what's called a Lux meter, L-U-X meter. A Lux is a measure of light. One Lux is equal to one candle flame. So the recommendation is for three hours before bed to have 10 Lux or less. So that's 10 candle flames, which, you know, three hours before bed, that's just not realistic for a lot of people. And I think it's easier to put the blue blocking glasses on. Uh, so that's a great tip, like mm -hmm. 10 Lux for the three hours before bed. And then in your bedroom, we also don't want to be suppressing our melatonin with light in our bedroom. So the bedroom is supposed to be one Lux or less. And this is a great tool to just measure, am I getting the right amount of darkness in that time that I'm sleeping? So the Lux meter, you just, you turn it out, it measures it in the environment or is it? Uh, just yeah, you, it uses the, um, the camera on your phone. So you, so what I do is I put it on and then I just hold the camera to my eye level. Cause it's the light on your eyes that matters. Right. My teenager is like, mom, you're such a, a dork, but I'm like, I regularly test. I really regularly test like, okay, is it dim enough? And I, um, in our home, I have set up, um, lights that are specific for bedtime. And so I know, okay, when it's, um, that couple hours before bed, I only have this one lamp on and I tested it and it doesn't give off more than 10 lux. And we just kind of have this mood lighting and it helps everybody feel sleepy. Hmm. That's so, so interesting. I mean, we're getting great tips, really appreciate it. Um, let me ask, uh, we've done all these things and we fall asleep. Uh, there, there's some people I know have little or no problem falling asleep, but they don't stay asleep. I mean, not just say to get up to go to the bathroom, but but actually don't sleep more than two or three hours in a row, uh, whether they fall asleep again. It's another thing, I, I guess there's variation, but uh, what is, is there some explanation for that? Yeah, there's um, probably many explanations, actually, many different factors that could be going on. One thing I think about, Dr. Ron, is about people's stress hormones. Uh, we, you know, we want melatonin to be high at night, and there's a stress hormone called cortisol, which has kind of the opposite effect. Cortisol helps us be active and energetic, and Typically, cortisol will start to rise an hour or two before we wake up, helps us get going, get moving, feel energetic, and then it should decline in the afternoon. If we're under chronic stress, that cortisol pattern can get um, altered and kind of stay high instead of declining. And that's something that we can see with people who are uh, waking up lit in the middle of the night is their cortisol might be too high. The other thing that I'd really like to raise is I'm a big believer in time off and boundaries and saying enough already to the to-do list. 
And one of the really interesting things that came out of actually the industrial revolution is that all those principles of machines, that they should be efficient, that they should work constantly, that productivity is the thing, started to be applied to human beings in a way that never really was previously. This is kind of a new way of thinking about human beings. And, um, you know, so sometimes we put that on ourselves, like we should always be on. And so people can have that racing mind or even sometimes kind of take advantage of the fact that nobody's talking to them, nobody's interrupting them to like think about things and process thoughts and maybe brainstorm or, you know, plan the next project or whatnot. And I think it's much better to have boundaries around your sleep hours that during this time, I'm not doing anything. I am just resting. Like this is, this is my rest time. And I'm not even taking care of my thoughts. Like taking care of my thoughts is a daytime activity. Uh, and that's a skill that people can learn to set their thoughts aside and establish those boundaries. But the first step to any solving any problem is to, um, you know, name it and um, adopt the attitude that it's okay not to be productive on your thoughts during sleep hours. That That's, you know, it's so fitting and so such wonderful advice because a lot of us have learned to do this with other things that, uh, you know, whether it's not eating after dinner or, you know, building in meditation time or whatever it may be that, uh, you know, if we learn to, I, I just think psychologically, it's great to feel that you've got some control over that, that part of your life, even if what you're doing is saying, okay, I'm not going to be tightly controlling during this time that I have control over my life. Um, I've got uh, several questions and then I want to find out more about what Pete, where people can learn about you. But one of my questions, um, actually before that, I, I've been thinking as you've been talking that, uh, and I usually have not had a sleep issue, but I think about three times in my life when I, my sleep wasn't as good. And uh, when we talk about the stress hormone, cortisol and stuff, uh, once um, I do remember like in my teenage years that it would take me quite a while to fall asleep. And I, I think teenage years are, are almost by definition stressful. And me, uh, I, I'm much older than you. So I grew up during the Cold War when we were first learning about things like like the hydrogen bomb and stuff like that. Ah. And then when my kids uh, started driving and their curfew time was later than my bedtime, I uh, would typically wake up to, to make sure that they were home by, by some time. And then as my, uh, my wife, got ill before before she passed away um i was very sensitive to if she got up during the night and needed help um so it's it's obvious that there is a relationship between stress and and being able to stay asleep um but that raises another question in, in my mind um 
I fall asleep very quickly. Uh, okay. Somebody told me that means I'm sleep deprived, that you're supposed to take uh, 15 minutes or a half hour or something like that. Is, is that true? Yeah, we think of it as normal to take up to 30 minutes. And if somebody ha is falling asleep when their head hits the pillow, which you'll often hear from people, that can be a sign that they're not you're not getting enough sleep. If you're waking up to an alarm, either a phone alarm or I think better yet, an old fashioned little um, battery powered alarm, that's a sign that you haven't gotten enough rest. And it's so um, conditioned in our culture to wake up to an alarm that people don't necessarily make that relationship that yes, if I'm waking up to an alarm, that means I'm truncating my sleep and I need more. Uh, so if you are regularly waking up to an alarm or feeling like you're falling asleep as soon as your head hits the pillow, probably a good idea to, you know, at, increase your time in bed by 15 minutes every three or four nights until you're um, not needing an alarm or falling asleep quite as quickly. So not needing an alarm is kind of, kind of natural uh, that, that, uh, you really don't want to need an alarm, even if you have it as a backup, but. Uh... Right, having it as a backup is a little different than relying on it. And so often my uh, patients say, you know, they're using three alarms because they just cannot get up. That's, that is the sign of not getting enough sleep or sleeping at the wrong times for your body clock or something's going on if that's, um, if that's the case. Have you noticed a shift in the culture in terms of sleep being recognized as being more important? Because I remember uh, at various times in my career, it was almost like a badge of honor to see how little sleep you could get, uh, just on the assumption that um, you can be more productive the other way, that uh, look at how much of life you're missing if you're... Uh, sleeping nine hours instead of five hours or something like that. Uh, I think there's a greater recognition, or maybe it's just because I've become more aware of it, that uh, that sleep is, is really a very important kind of thing. Yeah, I, find, I kind of feel like we're in this contradictory place where, um, yes, you know, I've been doing sleep for a long time since the mid nineties. I'll date myself was when I graduated college and started working in sleep in different roles. And only recently when I'm out and about at social occasions, is it notable that people aren't telling me and um, bragging about how little sleep they get. And certainly it's much more in the social media talking about the importance of sleep. So that's good on the one hand, but on the other hand, we see year by year by year, the percentage of people who are getting six hours or less on work nights is continuing to grow. Um, you know, so that is not a good sign. The number of people who truly only need six hours is probably two to 3% of adults whereas 36% of adults are getting that. And so, you know, most of those people are, you know, a third of the people are sleep deprived then. And uh, so it's kind of, yeah, I think it's, there's some contradictory information out there about the importance of sleep. That's interesting. Um, 
Well, let me ask on behalf of a uh, few people I know, I'll think of one guy in particular whose work may involve, I'm in Philadelphia. In the course of a month, you know, he may be here for a week and a half straight, but in that same month, he may uh, tra have business-related travel to California. It's three hours away. Uh, business-related travel to Europe that's like five hours in the other direction. Uh, they have a day-long meeting, say, in Atlanta or Miami, which uh, is, is, is in the same time zone. But since it's a one-day meeting, he has to take the like, a 6.30 flight means that he has to get up at, you know, four or something like that to get to the airport in sufficient time. Um, is, is there anything that he can do to control anything? Uh, or, you know, do I just tell him, earn what you can while you can, don't assume you're going to keep doing this forever. Yeah, and you said that it's a one day, um, a one day challenge. His trip is just a. If he goes to a different time zone, it's usually more than a day. But he can. Yeah, there are um, there are plans that people can put in place for international travel. We think about it as being a concern, really, when people are traveling more than three or more time zones, and. Um, the the recommendations are a little too specific and complex to share here, but I would like to use this as an opportunity to let your community know that there are um, sleep specialists that you can access for different uh, sleep conditions. For this jet lag or shift work or insomnia, there's a field called behavioral sleep medicine, and there are particular practitioners around the world, and there's a website where people can look up and find a provider in their area. And so when somebody is doing this in this travel on a regular basis, I think consulting with that person with a behavioral sleep specialist and getting some plans about uh, your schedule, what you're going to do, what you can do in advance, maybe the application of some treatments, light melatonin, very precisely timed and dosed could be helpful for those situations. So that's uh, a resource for people is behavioral sleep specialists. Behavioral sleep specialists. And uh, what about sleep studies? Uh, is uh, that kind of in the same ballpark or is that a separate kind of thing? Yes, yeah, sleep studies we think about for different classes of sleep disorders. There's actually six different classes of sleep disorders and 58 sleep disorders, which most people think there's about 10. Um, so for sleep breathing disorders, for sleep movement disorders, for really profound sleepiness such as narcolepsy, those would be great conditions to go to a sleep clinic if you think you have and uh, need to get evaluated and treated. Okay, so that brings us to you. What do you do and what can people, other than re-listening to the podcast, learn from you uh, and, and where can they find you? Yeah, so I've taken my 20 years of patient 
care experience and all that I have learned and also my studies and continuing education to winnow them down into a series of courses that are online for folks. It's about three and a half hours of video lessons plus all the worksheets and whatnot to rebuild your sleep. And I have taken the time to really customize them for different uh, demographics and populations because women need different sleep skills than police officers or shift workers or families. And so there's seven different populations that I've really, um, you know, winnowed down and narrowed down and made the course specific to. And you can find those at skilledsleeper.com. And also I'm on social media, Instagram, TikTok for little tips and uh, Substack and YouTube for more in-depth uh, study as skilled sleeper. Skilled sleeper, and we'll we'll have the uh, links in the show notes. Uh, Great. In the meantime, um, what uh, I I know I'm asking you maybe an unfair question because we're distilling lots of information, but. If there are two or three or four general principles for the, the average person who maybe doesn't uh, need uh, real intense work in this area, but uh, may be a little sloppy about it, you know, just like uh, they may have gotten that way with respect to eating patterns or how frequently they exercise. Are there just a few general principles you can leave us with? Yes. Yeah, so... I would, the, the importance of getting adequate light during the day and darkness during the evening and night can't be overstated. So use a Lux meter on your phone, test your lighting. It should be 250 Lux when the sun is up and 10 Lux for the three hours before bed and one Lux when you're in bed for sleep. Doing that alone is I'm sure going to make a big difference for people. And then that idea of sleep is just for rest and relaxation and kick your thoughts out of bed, uh, deal with your thoughts proactively, calm your racing mind before getting into bed. Those I think are going to make the biggest difference. Uh, and then the last thing is to, like we talked about, identify how much sleep you do best with and get that amount of sleep every night. Uh, you know, the whole idea of making up for your sleep on weekends just doesn't work. And, and then an analogy would be if you need, you know, only having 60% of the calories and nutrients and food you need on work days and then thinking, okay, that's fine. I'll just feast on the weekend. Nobody would do that. That wouldn't work. That wouldn't make sense. And why do we do that with our sleep? It's a great analogy. Um, I guess the one thing I didn't ask uh, that's kind of been gnawing away is what we, uh, we're, we're a fairly sedentary nation. Um, what we do during the day is, is that's something that we should be concerned about. In other words, uh, uh, does being sedentary keep us from being tired enough or is that you know, for our mind is working, uh, is, you know, exercise a different discipline or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so being physically active and exercising definitely improves sleep. 
Uh, and also the timing makes a difference. If you're exercising uh, at 4 p.m. or earlier, it's going to help you fall asleep earlier and be ready to wake up earlier. If you're exercising at 7 p.m. or later, it's going to push your body clock later, making you be more of a night person. Okay, that's gotten so much information. I asked more questions than I anticipated asking, but is there anything I should have asked you but didn't before we we sign off? You know, I think that this is a great, uh, has been a great conversation. And if people do the lighting, kicking their thoughts out of bed and making sure they're getting enough hours in bed, I think that will help a lot of folks. Well, Catherine, that's uh, been so enlightening. There's so many great ideas that many of us don't think about and are easy to implement. And I'm very, very grateful to you for sharing so much. And we, as I said, we will have our uh, links to your show notes uh, or our links to your uh, courses in our show notes. We'll have links to social media and so on, because I know a lot of people gained a lot from this and will hopefully continue to gain because as a nation, we, uh, and as a, a species, uh, we seem to have lost a lot of our ability to do what, what was natural at one time, which was to sleep in line with uh, the, the following the circadian rhythm. So, uh, Thanks again, and this brings to a close another episode of the Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser podcast. Been very, very honored to have Dr. Catherine Darley uh, teach us about sleep, something that you would think we wouldn't have to know, but we, we really do, and she has lots of resources available to continue our education in this very important uh, role as we try to become the best version of ourselves and to live our lives enthusiastically, which is a lot harder to do if you're tired. So uh, until next time, I hope that you have enjoyed this enough to listen to the podcast again, download it, tell your friends about it, uh, rate and review it, and be back Next time for another very interesting guest, although I can't promise you that you'll walk away with as much information as we got today, but it'll be good. And so until then, um, remember everybody, uh, stay positive, stay safe, and get enough sleep. And if you're not getting enough, you've got some ideas on how to get the right amount. Take care. We'll see you next time.